Yeah, Drogon. Drogon was apparently a stealth fighter out there, just flying over the air defenses. They're just firing randomly in the sky like it's Bosnia trying to shoot this thing down. Like, come on! So, so he was F thirty five. Did you your new fighter oh, jet? Right? Oh yes. There you go. Yeah, the other two were were just like they were biplanes, basically. But Drogon's oh, okay, the F thirty five. Oh my god! He was capable of vertical takeoff and landing. So. Oh, there you no. go. Oh my god! That was yeah. That was the worst, and that's it. Shows that everyone uh, there wasn't a single person who actually understood military strategy going forward there. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode twenty-three. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Our show brings together young professionals from all around the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy exciting, interesting, and easy to understand for the everyday person. Today, we are joined in the virtual studio by usual contributors Stephen Howard. Hello! And Tom Zratfelders. Hey, hello. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. In recent months, tensions between the United States and Iran have nearly exploded into armed conflict on several occasions. Last year, the United States left the Iran nuclear deal and began reimposing tough sanctions against the Iranian government and its people. Ever since, both sides have been mired in a dangerous cycle of escalation. We've seen the United States impose more sanctions Iran break its commitments about limiting uranium enrichment, and unmanned drones shot down on both sides. More recently, and even more concerning, Iran has seized several oil tankers operating in the critical seaway known as the Strait of Hormuz. With all of this in mind, it's easy to see how the situation is potentially becoming desperate. So let's talk about this panel. Is there any reasonable hope for a new Iran nuclear deal under the current administration, or are we doomed to engage in military conflict? And if so, what might this look like, and how successful do you think this would be? So my short answer will be no. I don't think that we are going to get a new uh, Iran nuclear deal, but I also don't believe it will escalate into war. I, It's become a little obvious to me that while there are some hawks in the U.S. administration, the, major, the actual decision maker themselves doesn't want war. They And it's... Not so much I don't think they want war because uh, of any – they might be able to reason this out or et cetera, et cetera. I think they're just a little bit afraid to go to war, and I think that they're uh, – they think it's going to derail their economic progress, which is – and to be fair, they're right. If a war would uh, drain so much resources from the United States that we don't have already, and that would probably doom any uh, future economic progress. But I don't think that – at least with this current administration, a new deal will be passed either. Yeah, actually, I, w- I would subscribe to this uh, completely. I think that, um, well, basically, um, pretty much what Trump wants is, of course, as we all know, he wants to get new nuclear deal. Uh, what Iran wants is actually get the access to the international economic system, which, which it has uh, been uh, denied access to, right? So, basically... Uh, What's currently happening is uh, both sides are just like um, 
they don't they don't have a, like they can't back up uh, back down from uh, the, the the policies that they have uh, started uh, implementing currently so so basically it's, it's like um, um, no sides want war definitely as Steven said uh, but at the same time they can't really uh, show the weakness and the inconsistency uh, regarding their policies uh, for Trump basically if he would say that um, well we are changing this stance and actually we might uh, just um, Go, maybe go back to GCPOA. It would uh, it would like uh, look really bad um, in the eyes of his supporters. I think uh, like Republican voters. And regarding Iran, if he if uh, the ruling regime would say that uh, okay, the United States is right, we will change our policies, etc., then. Uh, that basically the hardliners within the ruling regime of Iran would just say that uh, basically you are complying with the pressure from our greatest adversary and so you are done. <laughs> so basically you will just like lose power and uh, I think that's pretty pretty bad situation because uh, both sides have to like um, uh, find a way out of this but at the same time not uh, not losing their face. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the biggest problem with this entire fiasco that we find ourselves in is that the United States is essentially changing the very fundamental way that it approaches this deal. Because the Obama administration was essentially saying, you know, we're we're making it clear that we don't want to push regime change, and that's why the deal is in place, is to show that we don't want you to have nuclear weapons, but we will accept, at least on paper, that regime change is not going to happen anytime soon. But the Trump administration is clearly not willing to to make that tacit approval, essentially. And so they're going at it saying, you have to essentially change who you fundamentally are as a nation. And of course, that's just that's just not feasible for Iran to do. Um, I think I, I would agree that we're not likely to see a new nuclear deal because, I mean, Iran doesn't even have really any incentive to negotiate this deal right now. They look like the ones who are, you know... They upheld their end of the bargain, at least for much longer than the United States did, did so they look a lot better. I, I would say that I would disagree in that the only way I could see a possible new nuclear deal being negotiated is if essentially Trump just pulls a NAFTA, right? Where he basically renegotiates almost the same exact deal, but then just calls it something different, says, no, 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 it's completely different, guys, trust me. This is fundamentally different from what the previous guy did because he was bad and I'm good. And that's about the only scenario I could see. And even that's not very realistic. Yeah, and I'd say that the problem with that scenario would be, like Tom's pointed out, the hardliners. So you have hardliners on both sides, the American conservatives and the... I shouldn't just say American conservatives. There were also uh, portions of the Democratic Party which were against the JCPOA. But then in Iran, you also have just the hardliner hardliners, the reactionaries. And the, the kind of the nice thing about the JCPOA was that it wasn't made to make anyone really happy. And that's how it was able to get through in both countries, which have administrations which are so diame- diametrically opposed to each other. So in Iran, you had the, uh, the, the hardline conservatives there were against the JCPOA the entire time. And basically, they're just being able to say at this point, ha ha, told you. And if 
Iran even goes back to anything resembling the JCPOA with the United States. And it, I believe that uh, it's going to be political just destruction for the Rouhani administration. And uh, they're not going to do that. They want to stay in power. Um, at least the, uh, the moderates want to stay in power, I shouldn't say. The United States, you have very much a similar predicament, like Tom's was saying. If you roll back in the United States, you're going to have the reactionaries and the conservatives in the United States, which are going to balk at the deal. I don't think there is room for a deal between the two conservative powers in each country, which are really the decision makers when it comes to both administrations right now. Yeah, the deal fundamentally is complete capitulation of the Iranian side is that that's what the United States will accept. And of course, that's not a deal at all. That's a surrender. Uh, I, I might ask one question for both of you, maybe uh, taking into account that you are both living in the United States. Uh, what do you think? Uh, could Trump stay in power after 2020? And uh, if there is a change in the, in the administration, uh, could that also change the, the way how United States approach regarding Iranian issue? So I personally don't think it will change the way the United States approaches the issue. I do believe that it will change the way the rest of the world approaches the issue. I believe that right now the rest of the world, especially our European allies, are waiting for the administration to uh, go away, basically. They just <laughs> they don't want to see it there anymore. Um, and once the Trump administration, if the Trump administration gets reelected, at that point, they're going to have to readjust and go back to like what we talked about last time, what Angela Merkel said, we are not going to be on the Chinese side, we're not going to be on the Russian side, and we're not going to be on the American side, we are on our own side now. And in that type of multipolarity, you're going to have many different sorts of uh, different organizations coming about. And I believe that the Europeans will work to see the American financial, I guess, hegemony over the world right now, which is the reason why sanctions and secondary sanctions are so potent is because of the American uh, financial hegemony. They'll work to see that go away. And at that point, you have a whole new dynamic in the trade or in the uh, JCPOA talks. And that's you have literally the world working to destroy the uh, the ability of the United States to impose such strong sanctions. Do you think that the whole world will want to destroy your financial hegemony? Well, um, basically, I, th I think it's uh, more, more, uh, more, um, more beneficial to actually cooperate and trade with you than just compete with you, right? Well, sure, and it's uh, not so much. Um, I think that there will still be cooperation, but they want to set up a new pole of power. They don't want to be under the U.S. thumb. At that point, they don't want to have to bend to what the United States says. And that's why I've, I've written before that sanctions are such a fickle tool in that way, because every time you use them, if you're the United States uh, especially, you show how sensitive and how vulnerable the world is to a unilateral action that you can take. And after several unilateral actions like that, the world starts to kind of go... I don't really like being held under the thumb of a of something that I can't control whatsoever. So we need to find a way around this. And so when I say ending the U.S. hegemony over it, I'm not meaning um, going and trying to destroy the United States economy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but creating a new pole of power that 
while may not be completely equal to the U.S. Uh, financial system, allows the Europeans to go around sanctions uh, in a more formal way than creating the 15 million or 15 billion dollar, I can't remember which one it is, uh, fund that the Germans are trying to push for. Oh yeah, actually, that's one of the main criticisms, I think, uh, regard the, regarding the position of the European Union is that there seems to be many voices inside the bloc who are saying that we should not sacrifice our financial cooperation with the United States uh, just to help Iranians, right? So that's one of the reasons why this instec mechanism, which is like supposed to help Iran sell its oil and uh, basically access the global economy, is like so ineffective and uh, why Iranians are so unhappy about it. And uh, I think it's take, it will take a lot to, um, to maybe silence these voices within the European Union. Maybe it's just me, but I, my view on that is that I believe the Europeans would be, are willing to wait out the current Trump administration. I don't think they'd be willing to wait another four years under another Trump administration or mm -hmm. um, anything after that. I think that would be a, a pivot point. For the rest of the world or especially the u.s allies around the most u.s allies around the world yeah i i would agree with that too there's a lot of instances where it seems like other powerful nations or blocks of nations are just essentially waiting it out and seeing you know can we wait until 2021 or is this more of a permanent trend for the united states um i mean we've seen it in like you know it even looks like china may be kind of hedging its bets in this trade war until uh after the the next election but of course that's going a little bit off topic i do think it's very um it's a very good point that we have the united states has essentially abused that sanction power to the point where it's shown the liabilities of being under all those american sanctions and just to um you know just to clarify for everyone what so like we have the sanctions against iran and then we have the secondary sanctions which are sanctions against anyone who does business with iran including the European <laughs> Union. So what the European Union yeah. is doing is essentially, and Germany especially, is essentially setting aside this giant block of money so that they can essentially get around those sanctions and help to uh, to account for the cost of them, which is pretty remarkable since, I mean, I can't remember another instance where a group of nations has basically said, yeah, we're, we're just going to ignore the United States and their sanctions and we're just going to get sanctioned by them anyway. We don't even care. Um, so it is it is pretty remarkable in that regards. And it does, as you say, Stephen, it does kind of show that, you know, the United States really is starting to lose its its grasp over global economics and sanctions power. And I think that 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 would basically be a trend from the Western European countries like the you could say the old Europe, like UK, mm -hmm. Germany, France. But if you look uh, regarding the position of the countries like in Eastern European countries, for example, or Southern European countries, uh, they are not so actually um, they don't want to engage United States in the way uh, like the Germany or France want regarding the Iranian question. For example, our position uh, regarding Latvia is that we will not um, like take hindrance regarding this mechanism that the France and uh, Germany wants to, to to like to establish. They have that they have already have established. But at the same time, we don't believe it's it's gonna it's gonna work anyway. So <laughs> so basically so basically when it fails, <laughs> then we will be like, again uh, really like um, 
willing to work with the United States, and then we will be able to say, we told you guys, like, we, you, you tried, you failed, so now we can work with the United States again. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know someone's still on our side, then. Um, so I, I would take a little bit of disagreement with, because I know you guys kind of said that war is unlikely, and I agree it's it's pretty unlikely that we would have an all-out war, but, I mean, there is some disturbing trends within the administration that... Um, Seems like they kind of do want at least some type of conflict. I mean, you have Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and you have uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton, who are both pretty hawkish on Iran. I was just about and to they've, ask and they've been pushing have a mustache. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, a very, very prominent mustache. I got to give him credit for that. Um, but, but that they're pushing these um, these different tactics that are kind of edging us closer and closer to war, right? You know, so we we start getting more presence in the Strait of Hormuz, we start getting closer and closer up to, you know, those lines of demarcation in the area where if you cross that, we're going to have an international conflict. So it's like everything that we're doing, and to be fair, this is kind of happening on both sides of the equation, is pushing up against each other to try to ratchet up the possibility that someone is going to make a miscalculation, and then that's going to lead to an all-out war. And we've seen that almost happen on a few occasions. So that's where I think, again, I don't think that war is likely to happen, but we've definitely increased the chances of it within recent months. I do agree that the chance for miscalculation has exponentially skyrocketed, especially with what it seems like the uh, Revolutionary Guards in Iran are thinking about the U.S. forces. And the U a Revolutionary God, bleh, sorry, Revolutionary Guards seem to be thinking that this is a great political moment for them, which technically it is. And they are going to push that as far as possible. They're going to seize British fla uh, British flagged tankers. They're going to use their boats and just basically harass uh, different uh, oil tankers going through the Strait of Hormuz. They're going to uh, start sending warships into different parts of the uh, oceans. Their calculation is that the United States has been drained by all its Middle Eastern wars and it will not get into another war. And that's, that is a very, very tentative calculation, especially from the fact that the United States has just started rebasing troops in Saudi Arabia, which is an entirely different massive problem. But mm -hmm. it's something yeah, that can lead to... People will recall that that uh, kind of came back to bite us during uh, you know 9-11 and Osama bin Laden. It was one of the reasons, at least. Yeah, it was one of the reasons. And I'm just worried about how individual decisions are going to be start taking a lot of power for what's going forward. It's not going to be the president of the United States that decides there are torpedoes coming at our boat, fire, 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 like the Gulf of Tonkin. It's going to be that individual soldier who's on watch that night who hasn't slept for as long as they should have and thinks that a couple dolphins or torpedoes coming at them and now they're being attacked by the NVA. Did you uh, intentionally invoke the Gulf of Tonkin because I did. of its implications for, you know, <laughs> maybe or maybe not actually sparking an entire war based off of? It was a very, it was a deliberate really reference there. Happen? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, the risk for miscalculation is incredibly high. The risk for individual error, and it it has to be said that individual error is, it, it's not. You shouldn't say it's excusable per se, but it's understandable. 
not everyone can, can make perfect decisions every single time, but when you put them in situations where any decision they make, any wrong decision they make, may flare up a war, that's a perfect recipe for starting a war. I do think that if something was to occur and there was to be a flare-up, I believe there might be some strikes, incidental strikes, on uh, maybe Iranian ports, but I don't believe it would... I believe the Iranians would try to not back down, but de-escalate the situation. I think that the administration would also try to de-escalate the situation. And my view there is that it would be like after the Syrians used chemical weapons, right? The mm -hmm. United States responded by bombing an almost unmanned airbase in the middle of a desert and doing virtually no damage to the regime whatsoever. So the regime was like, ha, yeah. You did hit us, and it's a violation of law, and we're not really going to respond to it because, let's be honest, it didn't do anything. I think that's why it's very important to actually have some sort of communication channels open between both sides. Although they have a really hostile relationship, they need some some sort of way how to speak. And actually, I think a few weeks ago, there was the foreign minister of, of Oman uh, in visiting Iran, and a lot of people were like speculating that basically Oman is again uh, in, in getting involved in the conflict and will try to mediate between the two sides. But well, the foreign minister just said that uh, this it's not happening. But a lot of experts are still believing that the king of Oman, like Sultan of Oman, wouldn't have done anything without coordination from the United States. Because I mean, like they have United States troops over there, so they, it has pretty big influence on its security and foreign policy, anyways. So um, basically, um, I think that Oman could be one of the key players here. Actually, well, not not maybe how solving the conflict, but actually how trying to um, to facilitate the links of communication, the bridges between the two sides. It's funny you should mention that because I have written a post on Oman and how it actually could be a mediator in that discussion. <laughs> Did you happen to read that? Is that what you're uh, referring to? Uh, not really, but actually Oman has been a really interesting country for myself. I actually wrote my master's dissertation as well uh, when comparing foreign policies of Oman and Qatar in the Middle East during the Arab Spring. So, uh, so yeah, I just see some sort of pattern here that uh, regarding the things that it has done before when trying to like uh, mediate between the two sides and uh, um, uh, ha having this possibility to convince Iranians to free the Western prisoners it has taken and and so on. Yeah, I agree. Oman is actually a very underrated country in my opinion in the Middle East. And they do have, mm -hmm. um, so just a quick refresher for anyone who hasn't read the blog post yet. Basically, Oman actually has a close history of of ties with Iran both before and after the revolution and so culturally they're also sort of at sort of in their own independent little sphere they're not necessarily Sunni they're not necessarily Shia either they're kind of a different sect entirely so they have a unique opportunity to play a role of mediator in, in the region yeah I am worried that there aren't too many back channels so I'm my worry is that even if the back channels are to the Rouhani government uh, the Rouhani government is divorced from the Revol Revolutionary Guards, right? They're not under the same wing of command. It's not like the United States or uh, any... Uh, I guess I don't know exactly how the Latvian uh, military command works, but I assume that the military is under civilian control there. And it's 
Yes, yes. Yeah, it's not exactly yeah. the same way for it on there. It's fine. Uh, well, anyways, I think that although uh, I might agree to you that Iranian Revolutionary Guards have their own interests and are basically the more hawkish players in this game which we are seeing currently, but I also disagree that they are acting completely uh, without coordination with Rouhani's government. Because I think Rouhani himself, he needs to show this kind of force, he needs to, to also... Um, uh, to, to also um, make make the world see that he is this decisive player who controls the situation, even though Trump withdraw from the GCPOA. So that's why I think that, uh, yes, IRJC is the ones who are pushing this confrontation, but Rouhani is informed of this, and he understands what they're doing. Uh, and it's actually, I, I uh, disagree with you on that, because I think that the... Mm -hmm. uh, stemming back from a couple of years ago when the in the course of the JCPOA, uh, I guess, negotiations, the uh, Revolutionary Guard decided to send ships out into the Atlantic Ocean as a kind of a provocation. And you saw a lot of provocations coming from the Revolutionary Guard during those negotiations, trying to uh, what what it looked like, honestly, was trying to derail them, trying to stop this uh, guy from getting more power. They wanted one of their own in there. They wanted someone more like. Ahmadinejad, who would kind of bend to their will a little bit more. I kind of see it as he's trying to, I see Rouhani trying to make the best of kind of the situation, trying to co-opt in their actions, and in that he's, I think, a deft player, but I don't believe there is explicit, well, there, there might be some coordination between the two, but I don't believe there's the type of explicit coordination that you would want from a or you would expect from a government in their military. So basically, uh, you agree that they know what the, each other are doing, but still, uh, for example, if IRGC would disagree with Rouhani, then they would just go their own way and ignore his comments yeah, or opinions. I think to an extent. I mean, you also have... I mean, the IRGC has uh, run raids on some of his appointees uh, and just started locking them up, because obviously the... Uh, hardliners in Iran control the Ministry of Justice, and they've uh, tried attacking his appointees before, throwing him in jail, trying to, you know, put him off balance and stuff. I, and that's, I mean, all all politics are local, right? They're just trying to, both of them are trying vying for power in the, that government. So I guess final thoughts on Iran. Do we think that is probably just going to be, we're at an impasse until 2021? that will have high tensions, probably not a war, but also probably not a deal? Yeah, I think that's most likely scenario what we might get. Well, I, I just don't see that there is a certain room for maneuver just to make exit from this situation, to like, like find some solution without any of the side losing its face and uh, just not looking not not making themselves look weak uh, in front of the whole international community. So. So I think, yeah, that, that will be a pretty hot topic and uh, international security analysts will have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I completely agree with Tom's. I, I did want to bring up one more point in that uh, the sanctions and the toll they're taking on the average everyday um, Iranian. I read a little while back about one of the specific impacts of the sanctions had on the Iranians, and one of them was a uh, increase in... Uh, under 18 suicide rate and that is coming mm. from the fact that these kids that are growing up 
as a child, you don't understand that the world changes, that the world might get better, that the world might get worse. And these kids have for their entire, you want to call it adult life at that point when they're 18, from the age of 10 to 18, have lived under sanctions. And for many of them, I mean, they go to the store. Can I buy that necklace? No, you can't buy that necklace. There's, are you kidding? You see how much that costs? Do you see how much we make? And the kids just think that's how life is. They don't want to be in it. And so the under these sanctions, things like the suicide rate have spiked. So while even if you do see these sanctions as necessary, it is you need to take into the human cost of what's going on there as well. And even if you believe that the political cost outweighs the human cost, it doesn't mean that you can ignore the human cost. You are paying a price, and you need to understand that you are causing other people, regular people. You're not hurting the administration. Rouhani can still go and buy cakes at the stores. Uh, Zarif can go do whatever he wants. It's these normal Iranians that pay the price for sanctions. And again, even if you believe they're necessary, you, you got to remember what you're doing. Actually, it's very interesting that Zarif was also sanctioned. Oh yeah, definitely. So, so basically, it's like how how are you gonna do? Uh, how are you gonna sign a new deal if you are sanctioning the same foreign minister who is interested in signing a new deal yeah. with you? Well, it didn't put a very good uh, spin on it that he was sanctioned right after he denied a meeting with a Trump administration. I mean, that's uh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> hey, negotiate with us or we'll sanction you. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Stephen, because we often forget about that these really do have real-world implications. I mean, that's, you know, personally, that's why I care so much about foreign policy is the United States has such tremendous power to to inflict both great harm or, you know, great success on another nation. And we don't think about the responsibility that we have as, you know, at least American citizens that we can impact that. You know, we can change what happens in Iran just sitting out here in, you know, in the middle of Midwestern United States. So that's something very important to think about is that these actions really do have consequences, real world consequences for everyday people all over the world. I have always wondered how is it, how is it to like live in a like to be the citizen of the great power, but actually you understand that your country has, is so powerful that you are actually you as a citizen can change something. For me, it's completely different because, like, I, I have always been living in a really small country, <laughs> and we are like always, uh, like, seeing what the great guys are doing and how we can like survive between them. And um, it's just interesting uh, perspective, different perspective you guys have. Oh, definitely, and I completely agree with you because I've had the exact same. I feel bad about saying this, but I've had the complete opposite thing <laughs> of, wow, I wonder how it would be to be able to get up to like the top post in your country and not still not really be able to uh influence all events on earth yeah. basically sort of thing oh yeah and oh, that's yeah. Yeah. kids in the united states and i think that's where some of the u.s hubris comes from is you grow up thinking you can change the world because let's be honest if you get to a if you become president you can actually change the world and mm -hmm. i think that leads to a lot of hubristic uh attitudes from the united states that don't help anyone yeah no it totally does and that's you know not to get too meta, but that's kind of been the driving force of this entire project is getting people, getting average Americans to understand the responsibility and the power that we do have to change the world. Hopefully for the better. We should be striving to do it for the better. 
All right, so enough about Iran and the specter of looming disastrous quagmires and war. Let's talk about something fun and educational. (laughs) So I, I know it's been a couple months since the end of the hit series Game of Thrones, but I've been thinking for some time that we could discuss that show in the context of popular international relations theory. Yeah, and I know, I know, oh. nerd alert, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds super nerdy, but I figured this is actually a good way to help illustrate to our audience what some of these theories are and what they're kind of supposed to look like. Um, and so, spoilers obviously abound for anyone who hasn't seen Game of no, Thrones. No, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, yet. there is no. You're just you got to go see Game of Thrones. That's what. That's the end of that conversation right there. There yeah. are no spoilers anymore. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know a lot of people had issues with the final season and i had a few but like come on it's still really great you still got to go see it so so the example i want to bring up and feel free to bring up your own examples at some point um so i want to look at queen daenerys's attempts to conquest uh, attempts of conquest and social change in marine and sort of how that relates to like liberal internationalism right so let me just explain for everyone because i know this is going to get kind of nerdy and, and wonky for a little bit here so so we got Daenerys, right? She's a foreign-born queen of, let's call it Western background. I mean, she's from Westeros originally. It's kind of got that, mm. you know, typical American Western style of thinking. Yeah, but with a monarchy, obviously. Um, she shows up to the ancient city of Marine, totally conquers it in no time. And Marine is a regional hub for slavery. And Daenerys is, of course, appalled by slavery. So she immediately bans slavery, frees all the slaves... Completely upends the social and economic stability of the city. Kind of like, you know, maybe Iraq, a little bit of parallels there. Um, She believes that because slavery is morally wrong, and her new policies are obviously morally right, that everything will just magically work out, and everyone will be happy in their new society, and it'll be great. Obviously, this doesn't happen. So, I feel like this is exactly like the type of social engineering that some people criticize about the idea of liberal internationalism. So in liberal internationalism, one of the core tenets is that democracy, tolerance, fundamental human rights, these are just morally correct. So as in the United States, um, so we, as in the United States, ought to export those beliefs and practices to the rest of the world. And the theory goes that since these are morally self-evident, right? I mean, they're just, they're good policies to promote that democracy, tolerance, that will just naturally win out over authoritarian governments and tribalism. Uh, But, you know, I think that as we've seen in Iraq and in this fantasy world of Game of Thrones, that just doesn't always happen. Both instances are ignoring critical differences that didn't account for economic chaos that would ensue by engaging in major social engineering programs. So in the end, people were far more concerned about staying alive and maintaining their positions of power rather than these self-evident principles of fairness and equality. Well, I think one of the main challenges of exporting democracy, as the United States is doing and maybe trying to do in the world, is that actually uh, you are outsider yourself when you are trying to do something mm-hmm. like that. And I think that's what Daenerys also experienced, that uh, he, she just went like a lady from God knows where to the city, tried to abolish the slavery, but at the same time, she just pissed off, uh, I'm sorry for swearing, she just um, uh, got really angry at the, um, the, popul- the, the previous rulers, the pre- previous slave masters, and she just had this um, difficulty 
of uh, building legitimacy from the scratch of getting her support base uh, regarding the, her like her project, right? And uh, if you are starting from nothing, <laughs> then it's definitely it's going going to be really hard for you. And uh, and then Daenerys actually wasn't really a experienced ruler herself. I mean, like if that was her first time when she just tried to rule, not just totally conquer and destroy something, right? So. Um, well, basically, you could you could just argue she she was given bad cards as well. I I'm gonna disagree with that because I think that so she went in there and she immediately upended the power spectrum, and she did not try to co-opt in the uh, I guess the ruling parties as much as yes, most others yes, would. Yes. And so in that case, it'd be yeah. kind of like the debothification of Iraq, where yeah. they went yes, in there exactly. and they just yeah. decided, hey, you guys, you're not in power anymore. All that stuff you've built up, it's not there anymore. Yep. Okay. Every every person who was capable of even doing the job was kicked out, or in yeah. Daenerys' case, crucified. And it's, I mean, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe even Daenerys had a point. Who knows? I, I'm not going to pass judgment on that because I think she was wrong. But <laughs> um, she it, it, she didn't leave any of the uh, old order in a position to try to co-opt themselves into the government. And so she had a insurgency on her hand. And mm-hmm. that's what in yes. the end drove her out was an insurgency which gained popular power because she was unable to co-opt in any of the ruling establishment, any of the ruling structures she tried to remake the entire system and install herself as queen. I mean, that's not giving anyone any. Oh well, maybe one day I can be president. No, you're not. You're not going to be queen. She's queen. There's <laughs> there's no reason for them to buy into her legitimacy. Yeah, and it speaks to. Um, so I don't know if uh, Stephen, if you've read Imagined or not. Obviously, you've read Imagined Communities, uh, Political Tribes. I think. The... Yes, I have. Yes, because I think I let you borrow that. Yes, you but did. in that she talks about how. So many of these instances have failed in places like Iraq and Vietnam where the, uh, you know, you have this minority power that has all of the power and all the wealth, but they're the minority of the actual country. And the majority is more or less impoverished. And then in both of those instances in Iraq and attempted in Vietnam and then in in Marine, they're basically trying to flip that. So the majority now has all the power or would have the power. And of course the minority is going to push back with everything they have because they know that the moment they're in the minority, they're going to get persecuted just as hard as they persecuted the majority. Certainly. That's so Iraq actually. Yeah. So Iraq. Mm -hmm. I mean like, uh, basically Sunnis were also, I think, uh, minority, minorities like power. And then when Shias were installed in power, Sunnis felt really pressured. So what's going to happen now? And, well, we'll see what we saw what happened with Iraq in the end regarding ISIS and everything. So, so yeah. But but actually, I think one of the things that uh, helps in such situations is uh, is a military power. But that there is a dilemma. If you are using military power to crack down on the people who you are, who are your political opponents, you risk being authoritarian yourself. So basically, it's. It's not really a liberal, liberal, um, liberal internationalism in this end. It's not export of democracy if you are uh, going away from your own principles, mm-hmm. right? Certainly. Yeah. yeah, and it's. I think that that's a good point as well as that she did have a, what would be called like a Praetorian guard 
of yes. military support, yes. which was, uh, like you said, she used the military to enforce police actions, which gives the military different qualities, which can lead to an overthrow. Obviously, she had dragons, mm -hmm. and that didn't really, uh, that deterred a lot of the, uh, I guess, a lot of her Praetorian guard from coming at her, but what happened the second she locked her dragons away because, hey, her dragons ate a kid, which is not cool, and it's played off to be like, oh, I feel so bad for Daenerys, she has to put away her dragons. They killed a kid. I mean, they burned a kid to death. No, yeah, those dragons gotta go. But as soon as she gets rid of the dragons, though, that's when the court intrigue starts, and that's when the um, Praetorians come out with their knives. Yeah, and it shows, mm -hmm. it also shows kind of that parallel between you know, she had a military that was very capable of taking over a city very easily, just like the United States could take over a city very easily, but they couldn't rule it. There's such a difference between actually conquering and ruling that, you know, the those unsullied forces, they weren't any good at actually putting down an insurgency because they weren't from the city. They didn't understand the customs and they wore uniforms and stood out. So it was so easy to, you know, just like what, we had in, you know, we in the United States or in Iraq, we just held ourselves up into the green zone and didn't actually go out into the city very often. And when we finally did, that's when we saw results and actually used the, the culture of the people to actually understand them better. So question for you guys. Do we think that if Daenerys had tried to win hearts and minds more that she would have won in Marine? She would have to win the hearts and minds of... Of the the ruling class, essentially. So I mean, probably not, right? Like, she she would have had to actually give them a position of relative power still within her new society. That would be about the and, only. And way I to think, do it. and I think she would also have to compromise regarding her principles of uh, abolishing slavery. And I think that's also one of the dilemmas she's facing. That's well, that's what I said before. That basically you want to change something you want to export certain idea but like the reality is just uh, pressuring you to compromise uh, regarding this idea just to attain greater stability mm -hmm. so yeah i mean how many lives were ruined because she went about it that way you know of course yeah. this is never a defense of slavery but it just shows that even if you have the best intentions you can cause a lot of damage by trying to do yes. the right thing What's the old quote? The road to hell is uh, paved with good intentions. Yeah, of uh, course. I mean, in the end, yeah, eventually Daenerys did win, but that's only because they, they kind of just wrote it as like, and then everything was fine because she had to go to Westeros because plot, and we need to move this along. So they didn't really. <laughs> well, she just ends up tie that a whole together. Bunch of people is what she does. She oh, yeah. she pulls a Russia. She just goes yeah. into Chechnya and bombs them. Yeah, pretty much. Which I guess that is something to be said about. You know, if you have a, a foreign power supporting an insurgency and you remove the foreign power from that equation, yes, it does help to remove the insurgency itself. Actually, there there was an interesting thing, right? Uh, like, the, basically, there was this coalition of uh, powers regarding the Daenerys who were really angry that she abolished slavery and who decided to overthrow her. So that's actually pretty interesting. What is the United States doing when there is certain there are certain principles uh, overstepped in the world? I'm now speaking about the invasion of Kuwait, for example, regarding the protection of the sovereignty in the world, and basically the United States like pulled all together this coalition 
of the, of the countries and went to liberate Kuwait. So in this case, it was different. Like um, the countries who are against this liberal idea, which Daenerys uh, took uh, with her, uh, they decided to form this coalition and just kick her out. So that's also a really interesting way how how we can we can think about it. Yeah, it's almost as if as if the tables were turned in that, you know. Yes, yes. Yeah. Instead of a coalition of the willing of a bunch of liberal states, it's a coalition of the authoritarian states, which actually actually oh, yeah. we yeah. should be on the lookout for because that now that we're moving into a multipolar world, that actually is feasible that something like that could happen. And I think it was more mm-hmm. of a coalition of the unhappy, right? It was a coalition yeah. of the yeah. dissenting, and mm-hmm. I think that. To be honest, I would like to see if we were to go back into Marine and we were to fast forward it, like, let's say 20 years after she leaves. I want to see what happens there, because a coalition of the dissenting is the perfect recipe for a civil war after they have gotten rid of that dissenter. So, I mean, you also got to think of the long term impact of what did she accomplish there and what did she, I guess, what was her legacy? Because that's another thing is the legacy of her actions there i am assuming caused civil war and did not did nothing to stabilize marine in the short term in fact it probably took oh i bet it takes 50 60 years for that city to really fully stabilize to the extent that it had been and even then they may never get rid of slavery i mean look at the united states we're we're still dealing with issues of racism and inequality hundreds of years after the fact. Actually, I, I might give different perspective. Sure. If, 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 for example, we are uh, looking from European history, like like uh, 18th century Napole- Napoleonic Wars, right? So Napoleon eventually was defeated by a coalition of countries who were unhappy with the ideas he was bringing, like this... Uh, the ideas of which he was bringing from the French Revolution. Of course, he, he, they were also unhappy because he tried to conquer whole Europe, but that's a different other story, right? They were also against the, his ideas. But still, when he was overthrown and the monarchy was restored in France, uh, still, I mean, though, uh, those ideas were felt in the air and they eventually led to the great revolutions in 19th century, which challenged the, the, the autocracies, and they also were forced to liberalize, they were liberalize the regimes a bit. Sure. So we are not sure. Maybe Daenerys did something similar, and we will just see that in the future. Sure. See, I, I would. I, that's actually really interesting, because then you got to wonder as well, like, was there an 1848 in that case? Was there a failed yeah. revolution that was supposed to take place, mm-hmm. and did that force the... I guess, more conservative powers to... Would that force them to give more rights and more liberties to the people? And is that how it comes... But that's like a 100-year, 150-year process. I mean, Tom's, when was the last uh, country in Europe to... uh, I mean, I guess there is still a dictatorship in... uh, Oh, God. In Europe? Yeah. The last... In Belarus, yes. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, in Belarus. Yeah. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. It could still be there. I'm just saying. Yeah, so I mean that was the that was the example I had, Stephen. I don't know if you had another example. I did have another example with Daenerys as well, and that is it goes all the way. This is the real spoiler alert, guys, because this goes all the way to the very last episode, mm-hmm. and this is when Daenerys says, 
oh, well, we're not going to stop here at the Westeros because she just conquered the Westeros and she just, you know, sat on the Iron Throne and all hail Daenerys, the Psycho Queen. And she, we're, we're going to go free the next city and then we're going to free the next city and we're going to free the next city because freedom cannot be free unless everyone is free. And that is the kind of circular logic that really has played into the neoliberal idea in the United States of a world would be more free and more safe if everyone was a democracy. Therefore, we need to force everyone to be a democracy. And that is a good, perfect way to get constant wars where you're trying to overthrow governments and you're trying to change them into democracies everywhere. And hey, you know what? John has to stab her for it. And I get it. I really get it. <laughs> I mean, at that point, we're basically like screaming at John, just do it. We know you're going to just just do it because we can't have someone who's like destroying every single city, burning them all to the ground and saying, well, you're free now. Congratulations. When they're not even really free, they're just under her rule. So it's not even freedom necessarily. It's just, you know, but she believes herself to be a benevolent ruler, of course. So. And that's, I mean, you could say that's the United States in this case. The yeah. United States believes itself to be a benevolent ruler, giving the principles that everyone should appreciate. And those principles are freedom of trade, their freedom of thought, their freedom of action, individualism, and individual liberties. Not every country thinks that same way. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to go around the world just freeing everyone who doesn't want to be freed, it's a recipe for disaster. But it's it's a very, very neoliberal idea, and this is kind of the uh, neoliberal and, to an extent, neoconservative. Um, yeah, and that's not to say, like, liberals versus conservatives and the idea of, you know, Democrats or Republicans. It's, as you were alluding to, it's that sort of greater idea of conservatism versus liberalism in international mm -hmm. policy. And it's an idea that, it's an idea that the United States has a, a... Uh, moral obligation thank you that's exactly the word i was looking for and i say that because i've used yes. that word before so i know not to use that word anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's if the u.s has a moral obligation to the world to make it safer which is to make it more democratic which is to make it freer which is to destroy all governments that are not free i don't know and that's that looks a lot like authoritarianism to me i don't Rousseau but would hey, be so you happy. can't you can't be oppressed if you're dead. Ah, think about that. So oppression of death. So yeah, no, I think that's a very that's a very good observation as well. That and that's the mindset that the United States had had, especially after the end of the Cold War. For I mean, what right up until almost 2016, right, mm -hmm. where we finally sort mm -hmm. of been jolted awake to this idea that we really can't think like that. That's I mean, that's being Daenerys. That's like, that's being awful and thinking that you should just conquer the world and impose your views on the world. Well, I think it was uh, like we were talking about hubris a little bit ago in the U.S. hubris. And I think that plays mm -hmm. into the U.S. hubris that we obviously have the best government on Earth. Look at us. We're so cool. Yeah. So obviously I mean, everybody <laughs> should be like us. I mean, I do believe that we have the best government in the world, but does that no. mean that we should force that on everyone else? Sure. Well, we have the be I think we have the best government for us in the world. Yeah. And and that's and it just shows the uh, the hubris of, you know, even the invasion of Iraq and the ideas behind that. Right. So the thought was not just, oh, well, we got to get rid of Saddam because he's bad. It's we're going to put in a democracy 
And that democracy, by sheer virtue of its just good awesomeness, is going to spread everywhere else. And everywhere else in the Middle East is going to have democracies finally. And we look back on that now and go, that's insane. Of course that wasn't going to happen for any number of reasons. And, you know, you could look at that and, I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking when Daenerys was saying all that is I'm like, girl, you don't even know. Like, that's it's not going to work at all the way you think it is, even with all your dragons and, and all that nonsense. So I guess there is one other aspect that I was also looking at, and that is the uh, instability of a multipolar world. And that mm. comes from the Westeros mm. specifically, where you have, in the beginning, a unipolar power, which, I mean, it's a weak unipolar power, to be honest, but it is unipolar, where you have one government that controls everything, one overriding philosophy, one military power, which controls everything around the lands. Good old Bobby B. Yes, sir. And then he dies, and everyone kind of fractures out and starts building their own little powers out there. And mm -hmm. that leads to inevitable constant conflict as every power sees the game they are playing, the Game of Thrones, as a zero-sum game. It is mm -hmm. you win or you die. And that leads to mm -hmm. constant conflict. That leads to just absolute civil war and atrocity. And uh, I wonder how you guys see that and also compare that to the coming unipolarity of the world that we live in. Yeah, no, I think that's that's very um, that's a very good observation. I don't think that we'll end up in quite as uh, dramatic of constant warfare just because, I mean, both sides are or I should say all of the sides in this multipolar conflict tend to be pretty militarily powerful and probably like there's still such deep trade interconnections that we probably won't see, you know, we're not going to see like the United States and China directly attack you each can't other. With tell the me that there weren't super huge trade connections within the Westeros. That's, that's fair. That's fair. I'll give you that. But I just, um, I, I think we've moved on a little bit past, you know, this type of great power world war. It's going to be simmering tensions and like little conflicts here and there and jockeying for power. Um, I would hate to think that we would actually have like full scale military conflict between these nations, but I mean, it is certainly possible. And we saw that in Game of Thrones at the very end, we only had power once basically all of those, the leaders of all of those little principalities and nations came together and said, okay, we're, we're just going to stop fighting each other. We're going to pick one person to kind of call the shots and... I don't think that that will necessarily happen, but it would create, you know, kind of like what the United Nations is now, where you'd have that forum to basically express these ideas without necessarily going straight to to warfare. Actually, that's also one of the things that, uh, that I also uh, kind of saw when I was watching the series, that basically uh, the conflict, the military conflict, is the catalyst for actually creating international order. Because when you are seeing that... There is no possibility that you are go you want you can overcome certain opponents. You mm -hmm. understand that you are uh, will be in a constant war in any way, so you will just uh, lose the resources, your people and uh, your populations will suffer. Then after time, you just come together and decide what to do, how we can live together, who will be influential, who will be less influential. 
and basically how we might live in the peace and that's how also the political order is created yeah after a time. i like that because that yeah. goes back to one of the articles i've read before it's a mutual they had to wait to negotiate until they got to a mutually hurting stalemate mm-hmm. and yeah, exactly yeah. that's yeah. i yeah all this all the sides realized that they they couldn't defeat each other so you know each one couldn't defeat the other and they couldn't all team up to defeat each other so they just had to essentially create a stalemate yeah and it's mm-hmm. i i think that the average civil war in the world today lasts about 11 years i believe that's the the last statistic that i saw on it mm. and basically it takes that long for any civil war area to either number one completely slaughter their opponents which is always an option if if you can or number two reach that mutually hurting stalemate that also kind of points to and this is getting a little bit off of international relations specifically but you know so we have all of these different nations or principalities fighting each other in westeros and they're ignoring the central threat that harms them all and what is that White Walkers. And what yeah. is that Ooh. in in the actual global war? Yes, yes. exactly. I like it. Yeah. I like it. But yeah, I mean, it's only when all of these different powers come together and decide that they're going to fight the common enemy that they actually succeed. And if they didn't, they surely would have all gone down. By the way, if we speak from the north, from northern perspective, um, actually, I think when we are analyzing Rob Stark, I think he's one of my favorite char- characters in Game of Thrones. Uh, that basically we can also see some sort of um, thing of over over commitment or uh, basically uh, pulling your yourself in uh, regarding too much commitments. Uh, I'm talking currently about the River Run. Because you know, I don't know. Maybe uh, when you when when during like, the first season when he was crowned king in the north, he was also crowned the king of the Riverlands, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So basically, I think that was also one one of the things why he had to stay in the river, Riverlands, why he couldn't just uh, basically return retreat from to the north. Uh, basically, it was a geographic advantage he had. Like, and basically just defend Mount Kaelin, you know, like there is this uh, fortification uh, at the border uh, from the riverlands and the north, which is re- really easy to, to defend if you have big army, right? But he couldn't do that. He had to, like, fight Lannisters in the riverlands because basically the, the, the river run lord said that you are also our king and we will cause problems for you if you if you don't, don't defend us. And it's also, like, one of these... Or co- commitment things that also, like, United States, for example, is also facing in the Middle East now. Yeah, I completely agree. And especially with the idea that it was the Riverlands who pledged their support to Rob. It wasn't Rob who said, you are also under my control sort of thing. So in that oh, way, yeah. it's like the ma- like how Macedonia just joined uh, NATO. And it's... Yep. yep. They, are pl- we, they are saying, hey... We want to be with you so you can defend us, not we telling them you are now part of our sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. And it's it's over – you're right. It's overcommitment. And it's an overcommitment which you have to be bold and say, we cannot defend you. If you want to be under my tutelage, sure. <laughs> but we're not going down there. You're bringing yourselves up here. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good, really good analysis and shows that, yeah, we – if we take on too many of these, then we're obviously putting ourselves in a in a military geographic disadvantage. Mm-hmm. 
the only reason Rob Stark was destroyed is because he had to mess around trying to defend the Riverlands, which are basically indefensible because they're just a giant, they're just a giant open area that anyone can attack from at any point. So, and I think they're 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 basically Germany of of Westeros. So yeah, and I think and and even more so, he suffers too from this attempt to sort of play the moral high ground where the United States tries to do that as well, right? Like, he's like, I'm not going to just mass execute political prisoner or my uh, military prisoners of war. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to provide them with food and medical attention and all that stuff. And everyone around him is saying, dude, why, why are you doing that? Like, this isn't some kind of moral high ground that we need to play. We need to win the war. And so he drains a lot of resources and energy doing that. And ultimately, he ends up losing in part because of it. Yeah, and I, I will say that I do I agree with uh, uh, I agree with you, Tom's that um, I think Rob was just a fantastic character, and I think he was the military mm-hmm. genius that was supposed to come out of that entire thing because yeah. he I think he did understand the strategic picture, and like when you're talking about how he just didn't you know execute Jamie Lannister, that was he was such a perfect bargaining chip for the rest of Westeros. Well, right, that made sense, not executing him, of course, but like, you know, the other prisoners, because he even says at one point, like, we're not just going to execute all the random Lannisters that we captured. Mm. Sure, maybe mm-hmm. he's thinking, oh, we'll hostage them or something like that, but but he even gives, like, those those people who need amputations, he's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll actually try to save them, rather than, you know, in a, in a medieval battlefield, if someone needs an amputation, they're dead. Pretty much, <laughs> but he spends all of that extra, you know, resources and, and his capital on trying to essentially save the other side, and it it ultimately comes back to hurt him because he tries to play the moral high ground, and people play that against him, much like people play that against the United States when we try to play that moral high ground. You know, not saying that we shouldn't, because there's some pretty terrible things that could be done if we didn't, but but it is a liability that happens. Oh yeah. The very last thing I wanted to bring up with this is the idea that Francis Fukuyama brings up in his uh, two books about stability. You know, it's, uh, what is it? Establishing of political order and then the decline of political order. I can't remember exactly the names of the books. But one of the things he says in them is one of the great ways that states are established and one of the ways that strong states are established is by constant warfare. And you see that in China and in uh, Prussia. And that's because if you have to go through constant warfare, you have to be able to mobilize as many people as you can. The only way you can mobilize as many people as you can is by having an efficient bureaucracy. If you have an efficient bureaucracy and an efficient taxing system, which allows you to get money for the soldiers, then you are set to be able to dominate the entire area around you. And that is the one of the foundational steps of modern government is that modern bureaucracy and so i think westeros in that sense probably is set up very well to create a modern bureaucracy in terms of uh, they now understand hopefully that they have to be more efficient in government they can't just spend billions of dollars on horse racing competitions where the mountain's going to crush the skull of the people that he doesn't like but no, that's that's a great point, Stephen. Is that they are very uniquely uh, positioned to to have a very strong functioning state if they just stopped fighting with each other. And it's at the end of the thing they do. 
but yeah, that's what, those are the kind of the trends that I can point out. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen and Toms, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Remember to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.